Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast with John and Hannah. Hi. And we know it's been a little while since we've put out an episode, but we've both been pretty busy at work, haven't we? Yay, key workers. Indeed, and obviously we're everything's sort of getting a bit manic around the Christmas period. But we're glad to finally get this episode out. We're going to be having a look at our schedule in the new year to see how often we think it's possible for us to put out episodes and whether we can reorganise it to make it work a bit better for us. But don't worry, we're still here. We're still going to be putting episodes out. And in this episode, as we've said, we're going to be talking about the goblins. After all, where there's a whip, there's a way. Okay, so first of all, let's start off by talking about goblins in D&D. And as we do in previous episodes of this series, we're going to be talking through the monster manuals and how they're portrayed in the various different editions. Then we're probably going to have a bit of a talk about how they're represented in mythology and things like that, and maybe how you can use them in your game. So first of all, we're going to start off with the AD&D first edition monster manual. Now, in this book, the creatures are described as appearing in large numbers, groups of about 40 to 400. Mm -hmm. The monster manual depicts goblins as short, tribal humanoids, led by the strong and ultimately owing fealty to a goblin king. Whether that's David Bowie with his massive codpiece, Mm -hmm. who knows? They inhabit underground caves and suffer a penalty to attack rolls when in full daylight. We get a paragraph explaining how goblin forces tend to be organised. For every 40 goblins, there will be a leader and four assistants. If 200 or more goblins are encountered, there will be a sub-chief and two to eight guards, which fight as the equivalent of hobgoblins. This very much smacks of being taken from a war game. You can really, yes, particularly yeah. in this description, see how D&D grew from a war game. Yeah, I've got There's that. no way you'd contemplate putting 400 enemies on a D&D game without using some sort of like sub-rules to make it go quicker. Yes, yeah. Now, yeah. unless you were playing a war game that just happened to have a bit of a story to it. Yeah. We're told that there is a 25% chance that 10% of any goblin force will be mounted on giant wolves, and if that's the case, they will have an additional 10 to 40 riderless wolves accompanying them. So again, we're seeing the sort of war game thing here, because I can't think of any encounter where I've chucked in 40 giant wolves (laughs) against like your standard PC party of uh, like four or five people. (laughs) But who knows? Maybe I'm just getting a bit soft in my old age. We get a bit of a, a little bit of a breakdown on encountering the chief in his lair. How many juvenile goblins, non-combatants there would be, and that's rated as a percentage of the whole force. Goblins are described as being fair miners with a 25% chance to notice newer unusual construction in a sort of similar manner to dwarves, which is quite interesting if you consider like in mythology they tend to be related to like knockers and stuff like that. Um, that we're told they can be in a bewildering array of colours from dull orange to reds and yellows. Although what we tend to think of now as like the standard sort of green hues aren't really mentioned at all. The black and white artwork shows a small figure with a shield and a mace. The face has like a vaguely sort of demonic look. It reminded me of like those Japanese like Oni masks that you see, which I thought was quite interesting. It, it, it doesn't look like the familiar portrayal of a goblin as we've come to know it today really Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so let's move on to the AD&D Second Ed Monster Manual. Okay, so in the Second Ed Monster Manual, we get a bit more description for the goblins. They're described as having flat faces, broad noses, pointed ears, wide mouths, and small, sharp fangs. And I do particularly like this artwork. Yeah, it's that sort of sketchy, sort of watercolour style, isn't it? Which mm-hmm. I know a fair few of them have in the the Second Ed Monster Manual book. It is quite a cool art style. We're told that they have a similar sort of colour range to first edition D&D, but that all members of a particular tribe tend to share the same coloration. We're also told that their speech is sharp and high-pitched. The stats and habitat information is pretty much the same as we get in first edition. We're told they live to about 50 years old, which adds like 10 to 20 years onto what we got in the, the first edition. And we're also told that they kill for the sheer pleasure of it, despoiling their lairs and making them foul. So, what about third ed? Okay, well, in version 3, 3.5, goblins are one-third challenge-rating creatures who mob around in either small gangs of 4 to 9, bands of 10 to 100, or similar larger groups to that that were described in the earlier editions. They now specifically ride the wolf-like creatures, known as wargs, rather than giant wolves, but are otherwise fairly similar. They're described as being bullied by bigger, stronger creatures. They have therefore become cunning, using strength of numbers to compensate for their individual weakness. They seem to be regarded almost as pests who would seem little more than a nuisance were it not for their dispositions and their high breeding rates. We are told, however, the chief goblin deity is Magugbliek, which I've probably pronounced wrong, who encourages his worshippers to expand their numbers and overwhelm the other races. So this is also the edition where they get added as a playable character race. Yeah, and I think that was something that got carried on in like Pathfinder as well. I think goblins are more of a thing in that. Mm-hmm. They get minus two strength, plus two dex, minus two charisma. They're small size, so they get all the armour bonuses and hide checks and stuff for that. Yep. They're not particularly quick, 30 feet, dark vision, bonus to move silently. I can see how it would work as a playable character. It's fairly hefty. Yeah, I mean, I think for myself, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you wanted to, if you wanted to like run a sort of a more evil leaning game, that that's grand. I think for myself, if I was going to have goblins in a get in a standard game, you'd have to lean more towards the like mischievous sort of trickster vibe than the sort mm-hmm. of like evil despoiling vibe. Because otherwise, I don't really see how you'd fit a a goblin into a normal party. I'm sure there's ways you can do it, but. For me, I just wouldn't see it really as a viable option unless you you leaned more on that sort of mischievous sort of like trickster vibe. Okay, so shall we move on to fourth edition then? Yeah. So this time round, we've got this little box out that sums it up quite nicely. There are goblins and then there are goblins. The word goblin refers to both the goblin creature as well as to a family of creatures that includes bugbears, hobgoblins and regular goblins. Okay. We've got a couple of notes about law, different DC difficulties for different levels of law. Yeah, for finding out information about them. So, for example, difficulty 20, 
Hobgoblins once had an entire empire in which bugbears and goblins were their servants. This empire fell to internal strife and interference from otherworldly forces. Perhaps the Fae, who many goblins hate. Which is interesting, considering how in mythology, uh, you know, goblins and Fae are sort of fairly like interchangeable. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the actual goblins, like rather than goblinoids as a whole, we get a brief description similar flavour to the earlier editions they're treacherous creatures they're only really dangerous in large numbers we get stat blocks for a a number of different types of goblin from the minion goblin cutters whose only real strength is numbers to the shaman like goblin hexer who can use its powers to bestow penalties on enemies and to enable other goblins to move around the map more rapidly taking advantage of their large numbers The artwork here depicts goblins as the diminutive green creatures of popular culture, looking for all the world like tiny orcs, effectively, looking Mm -hmm. very primitive. Okay, so shall we move on to a fifth edition? Indeed. Fifth edition spends a page, well, half a page, since half of it's covered by a picture of a hut, describing goblins as malicious creatures who revel in wickedness and the torment of others. We're told categorically, as with 4th edition, that they belong to a family of similar creatures, including hobgoblins and bugbears, known as goblinoids, and that their kinship has expanded beyond wolves to now include rats and other such vermin. Magubliet, the Lord of Depths and Darkness, is still the chief deity of the goblins, envisioned here as an 11-foot-tall, battle-scarred goblin with fire erupting from his eyes. We get two separate stat blocks, one for a basic goblin, which has a challenge rating of a quarter, seven hit points, and the ability to use the disengage or hide action as a bonus action on their turn, making it easy for them to slip out of combat and reposition themselves. We also get the goblin boss, who has a whopping 21 hit points and has the ability to redirect opponent's attacks, targeting itself onto nearby goblin minions so while they're surrounded by their minions it's pretty hard to take them down and they have more hp than your average first level adventurer might have which i suppose is appropriate given that they're one of the goblin bosses and the artwork here depicts a sort of primitive humanoid with sort of like a sort of muddy colored looking coloration tattered armor it looks a little bit more savage than some of the earlier versions which tended to look a bit sort of goofier i suppose you could say you know this is the very first one to have a pointy nose yeah all of the rest of them have had the sort of very short upward pointing nose whereas this guy's got like a long hook nose which again is more to a standard that you've sort of begun to expect for goblins. We've also got, I think, here, like the ridiculously exaggerated size of their ears when they've got mm-hmm. those massive, like, pointy ears, which we know from from artwork for like elves and goblins and whatever has become more of a trend. Instead of having like humanoid ears with a slight mm-hmm. point, they have like the ridiculously like fan-like sort of like backward pointing ears. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if we look on the previous page of the fifth edition monster, you can even see that with like the deep gnome where it's got like mad pointed ears and obviously we know that things like uh, world of warcraft and various other sort of modern depictions have popularized that style of like demi-humans having massive ears i don't know why i've got nothing against it but 
it is a bizarre thing that I think is worth mentioning. Maybe it's because ears are difficult to draw, but really big pointy ears are quite easy to draw. Who knows? Maybe. Or I think so, anyway. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about goblins in mythology. So do you want to tell us a bit about that, love? You uh, looked up earlier in the Dictionary of Mythology. What description did you get there? Yeah, this is from J.A. Coleman's Dictionary of Mythology. And in it, goblins are described as a frightening spirit or a gnome, small grotesque creatures that cause damage in homes and delight in playing malicious pranks. Mm-hmm. Which is a fairly sort of general description for all of those sort of mischievous, like fae sort of creatures. So that's what I wanted to get at for the mythology bit. Goblins tend to be a sort of a catch-all term yeah. for quite a lot yeah. of different sort of beings in different types of stories, like the uh, the creatures that break into the shoemaker's house and help him make shoes until one day he makes some shoes for them, could be described as goblins. Yeah. Um, they, they tend to have, like, specific character traits. Yeah, I mean, for instance, um, I've been looking up a few sort of incidents in the, the Westwood and Simpsons lore of the land, which is all about England's legends. And in North Hampshire, there was a, a medicinal spring in the 1700s known as Puckwell. Obviously, when we think of Puck, we think of like Shakespeare, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, mm-hmm. like that, this mischievous sort of fey goblin servant of the fairy queen Titania. But there's a number of sites in the area that have also got names described from the old English word puka, which can refer to a sprite or a goblin. But unlike the sort of puck in Shakespeare, these were often thought to be like demonic spirits or like imps that tormented folk. And it only seems to be sort of like later on in maybe like the 18th century that they sort of started leaning into that whole like trickster vibe and they were more recast as like mischievous fairies rather than sort of like bedeviling like imps or demons. In early stories... They're often comical. Yeah. They're often morality tales, but they're also sometimes associated with, like, stealing babies, eating people. Yes, yeah. Sometimes they're evil, sometimes they're helpful. It's a very big catch-all group. Yeah, and um, another thing it mentions in Law of the Land is, like, in the north of England and the lowlands of Scotland, they use the word cow, K-O-W, to refer to like some sort of shape-shifting like boggle or goblin that sometimes appeared as like a domestic animal or a human, it could change shape, and it used that and its power to imitate people's voices to like cause chaos and play these malicious tricks on people. And the word hobgoblins also used to represent mm-hmm. such creatures. So there's loads and loads of these stories, and I heartily encourage people, especially the ones living in the UK to look into like local stories about goblins yeah one thing i did think was interesting and i thought it'd be worth mentioning is i mentioned that the word hobgoblins often used Mm -hmm. then so interchangeably there and some derivation of the word hob it means elf which i thought was quite interesting because these are two very separate creatures but as you're saying it goes back to like how it's a generic term at one point yeah see 
they are very separate creatures in our minds yes. because we play D and D. Yeah, quite. But the main point I'm trying to get across here is that a lot of these creatures were sort of catch-all terms. Oh yeah, definitely. And there was a lot more sort of similarity between an elf and a goblin a yeah. long time ago to the point where the two words were interchangeable to describe something that in D&D terms would have entirely different stats from either. Like yeah, I mean, a boggling or a yeah, quite. hobgoblin. I mean, I think you see that separation coming a bit more sort of later on, later in literature, and certainly in, like, Tolkien, which I'll talk about later, you see that separation. So, the next bit I wanted to go on to was, like, the early 20th century fantasy. Okay. Which includes Tolkien. And just before we get into Tolkien, I wanted to mention Enid Blyton's goblins. Okay. I'm not really familiar with them. Well, there weren't many of them. Okay. Uh, they were mostly in the Faraway Tree series. Which I've not read. And they were pretty much just naughty children. Right, okay. They, they were the naughty one in the story that the other children were good and told a grown-up or helped, like, get their comeuppance somehow. See, I've got to admit, I only really know Enid Blyton from, like, the Famous Five and, like, the Secret <laughs> Seven, so... So... I specifically remember them not for the actual stories, but for some of the artwork. Okay. So, I've just pulled up a couple of book covers for John, and you can see that they're drawn very much more like Christmas elves. Yeah, like than elves what or like we gnomes. Would consider a yeah. goblin to be. Yeah, I mean, if if you look down at, I'm looking at that illustration of the one called the Goblin's Toy Shop, and the guy who's on it is pretty much the stereotypical sort of like leprechaun. You know, a, a sort of wizened, like, short old man, pointy ears, beard, mischievous smile on his face, a slightly odd sort of out-of-kilter clothing. So, having mentioned them and how sort of different they were being just a few years before Tolkien did his big Lord of the Rings extravaganza, when that appeared, it sort of solidified the word goblin in a lot of people's minds. And I know you've got a bit here that you want to talk about the goblins in Middle-earth. Do you want to jump in? And- yeah, and I mean, obviously now, b- before we go on, I- I'm no sort of scholar of, like, Middle-earth. There's people out there who wrote, like, books on it and, like, really studied it. But I've just sort of, like, looked in a few of the books I've got, one of which is the Tolkien Mastery by David Day. And it's ironic you say that... Uh, he sort of solidified the use of the term because I agree with you, like, say, elves, dwarves, orcs became separate races, not sort of a catch-all term in Tolkien's writing, but obviously he was influenced by the the, the sort of earlier mythology. But when it comes to goblins, the term goblin and orc, which, from D&D terms, they're separate, sort of related Mm -hmm. races, they were actually, again, used interchangeably Mm in uh, the, the sort of middle earth stories um we know that they were they're described in the bestiary as creatures who dwelled in darkness during ancient days creatures who were known as orcs black-blooded red-eyed and hateful in nature once a race bent on tyranny they have been reduced to acts of petty spite and vandalism and we also see the word hobgoblin gets used in Middle-earth sometimes to refer to the Uruk-hai, who are a stronger race of orcs who were unafraid of sunlight, who would either form large units of their own in the armies of evil, or they'd set themselves up over as the leaders of lesser goblins. 
Now, looking at the section on orcs in the book, since the two creatures are sort of pretty much the same thing, these creatures are described as elves who are tortured and twisted by the dark power Melkor into ruined and hideous forms, transformed into a goblin race of slaves as loathsome as the elves were fair. So again, we see this link between elves, goblins and orcs coming in. They had a variety of twisted forms. They were fierce cannibal warriors who didn't fear death since their whole life was supposed to be like a torment for them. After the fall of Melkor and the destruction of Angband, the orcs survived, returning in the second age of the sun to serve Sauron, although most of them were eliminated when Mordor fell following the defeat of Sauron during the War of the Last Alliance. Later they'd return to serve their master again, and from them he would, with his sorceries, create this new breed of orcs, the Uruk-hai that we talked about earlier, who were stronger in battle and didn't fear the rays of the sun. When the One Ring was destroyed, those few orcs that survived were never able to muster the numbers or power they had while serving Sauron, and they're described as dwindling in number, becoming a minor goblin folk, possessing only a fraction of their ancient evil. So it gives the impression here that that goblin is sort of like the human word or the human translation for orc, particularly in later ages when it's referring to them when they're sort of at the low ebb of their power. So they're not an entirely separate creature. It's just a different term for them, which I thought was quite interesting because it does harken back to that old mythology where it's like a generic term. So even though he, even though Tolkien has sort of put his own stamp on them and he's very much sort of separated them and made them their own thing, he's still giving a bit of a cheeky nod back to that that old mythology. And given his, given how much he sort of read into all these things and used them as inspiration, I can't believe that was by accident that he sort of did that. So, just to sort of mention again, with those two like bits of fantasy, yeah, we've got goblins in Tolkien being created by evil magic. Yeah. But we've also got goblins in Tolkien that are being like effectively bred as go- goblins. Well, well well effectively they they weren't they weren't sort of created by magic. They were I mean I suppose you could say it's magic but it's very sort of indistinct. It they were supposed to be out originally elves that had been like taken by Malkor and he'd sort of twisted them and he'd like tortured them and he'd remade them into this like ruined form of life which is why like the orcs hated everything that was beautiful and wanted to tear it down partly because it it sort of reminded them of like what they had been or like a racial memory of it but the fact that they're described when they dwindle as a race of minor goblin folk that sort of if you if you squint a bit that sort of suggests that there are other goblin folk in existence Although, obviously, that's only my interpretation of the matter. But, yeah, it's, it's still interesting. So if there were other goblins, what were they like? Uh, were they more sort of like fey creatures? We know that like fey-type creatures did exist in Middle-earth. So it's nice that even though it separates things out, it doesn't do it so thoroughly that everything's explained. And Tolkien left some quite deliberate sort of like blank and like hazy points when he was coming up with Middle-earth because it was supposed to be a mythology that he was creating. So this is something that I might want to come back to. Okay. But, so, the Tolkien stuff really, really took off in the 60s. And by then, like, the Tolkien image of a goblin was pretty well solidified. Yeah. 
by the time you get to like the next big thing with goblins in you're looking at the labyrinth in the 80s really there were a couple of films in the 60s and 70s that were excellent movies but time yeah yeah obviously we can't cover everything about goblins in this this episode because the episode would be ridiculously big and I'm assuming that most of our audience are going to have already seen The Labyrinth, so they don't need us to cover it again. I just wanted to highlight a couple of points that are sort of settled in to goblins by this point. Okay. That's the idea that they're ruled by the Goblin King. Yeah. Which we've seen in the uh, D&D. And his massive codpiece. The idea that they're created by evil magic... And in this case, it's by stealing babies and turning them into goblins. Yeah, because he's got that whole bit where he says, oh, in so many hours, you'll be mine, and you'll be a goblin, babe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That they're, again, comical in many ways. Yeah, they're quite slapstick in the labyrinth, aren't they? They're always, like, knocking each other's helmets off Um, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a kid's movie. They can only be so nasty. Yeah. Uh, And that, again, it's a morality tale. And each of those points, the other film from that era that I can think of that a lot of people will have seen is Legend with Tom Cruise. Yeah. And if you think about the goblins in that, again, they're they're ruled by this evil king. They're created by evil magic. They're sort of comical, and it's like part of this larger morality tale where they're just the bad guy's minions... Yeah, I think that's been a that whole being like ruled by a more powerful entity. That's obviously been a thing for goblins going back sort of ages and ages. I mean, like I say, if we if we go back to like the Midsummer Night's Dream thing, Puck's not in charge; he's like mm-hmm. a servant. We look at Tolkien, like the goblins and the orcs aren't in charge. So yeah, that seems to sort of like echo down through the various different iterations of goblins. So the next sort of story that I wanted to look at was quite a bit later this century in fact and that's Terry Pratchett with Raising Steam okay have you got anything you want to add in between no I think we've, we've pretty much covered most of the stuff I've got down about it so why don't you go ahead and tell us about Raising Steam I'm not really familiar with it myself so it's the second to last book he wrote I believe okay and it focuses on the idea of oh by the way there's goblins in the disc world They've been virtually unmentioned between the first couple of books and this point in time. So I was going to say, I don't remember like hearing mention of them in any of the other books. I mean, I know I've not read any I, of the later I've, ones. I've got but... a feeling that there is a brief encounter with goblins in one of the first two books with like Rincewind and Two. I, I mean, obviously there's like trolls everywhere, but... But the goblins don't reappear until Raising Steam. And it's an excellent book. I'm not going to spoil it or give you any kind of a briefing on it okay because by that point in the disc world it's not about any one character it's about ankh Morpork as a whole it's okay. about the world as a whole and everything that's going on between it and there's just too much going on to start explaining i just want to highlight the one specific character or rather the idea behind this one specific character and that's that 
the goblins in the Discworld, when they have been mentioned, are things to be splattered. They're worthless, horrible, disgusting creatures. So D&D goblins. And then it looks at the world briefly from their point of view. And one of the things that people say about goblins in the Discworld is, oh, they eat their own babies. And he looks with this book at the idea of how awful must a people's lives have to be for them to be starving so much that they eat their own babies. And what effect would that have on their culture? And how does like their religion work around the fact that their people are often starving to the point where they have to eat their own children? Okay. And it's a really dark story. Well, yeah, <laughs> a really dark story about people eating their own kids. But, oh, you do surprise me, love. It's also an idea that's been coming into modern fantasy quite a lot now. And the idea of like playing a goblin as a character race. Yeah, I mean, there's that whole thing at the moment where uh, a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people are trying to move away from that idea of like, here's the stereotypical evil race that you can go into a dungeon and splatter without any sort of moral mm-hmm. quandary. Um, I, I pers- which, if you like that, that's fine. But personally, I don't know. I mean, don't worry, I can see the benefits of trying to elaborate on a culture rather than having something as like a sort of two-dimensional stereotype. But I can also see for the point of a, a fantasy game like D&D, like having like a villainous race you can you can splatter without having to like wrestle with your conscience all the time can also be a benefit. I mean, every time you you go, oh, let's go into some dungeon delving in D&D, you don't want to be like delving into like morality plays and stuff like You want to kill some monsters, grab their treasure, get some XP and get out of the dungeon. But I, I, I can sort of see it from both sides. But you're, you're right, more people are sort of moving towards that. So this whole idea, it's something we've sort of encountered a couple of times when we've been looking into other creatures. Um, specifically, we noted that the Red Caps were probably at some point like English propaganda against Scottish people. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of various stories have used certain fantasy races to represent certain groups in the real world. Yeah, you, you for eat. the point of covering a story. Yeah, you, you, it's it's an old. Obviously, we don't endorse it, but it's an old sort of like tactic that's been used throughout history, where you you tell like a stereotypical portrayal of a group of people, you exaggerate their supposed characteristics to make them seem villainous or monstrous, because then you can justify your actions against them. I mean, oh no, we're not we're not just picking on the this group of people because they've got some stuff we want or whatever. Oh no, it's because they're monstrous us like things and so we're in the right to like getting rid of them is sort of how it's often portrayed in this sort of like bit bigoted worldview. so i was thinking about how in modern society there are certain groups that are treated in this way yeah and like poor kids off council estates running around causing trouble mugging people this is effectively the stuff that goblins do in D and D. Yeah. And I was thinking about the attack the block kids. Oh yeah. And how that could play out as a really interesting fantasy story, 
of someone getting like pulled into a goblin tribe to have to deal with a greater threat. I, I don't know, man. I mean, I have a sort of knee jerk trying to pull away from any ideas like that after watching Bright with Will Smith in it, <laughs> which I thought was absolutely terrible. I, I don't need to see the like orcs in the hood like movie again. I wasn't suggesting you modernise it. I was suggesting you D and Dify the basic story. The thing is, I, I think it could be interesting, but I think certainly with the film Bright. I mean, for me, the it was just a bit too on the nose with like the, the sort of Indeed. allegory. Indeed, and when you're doing that kind of stuff, if you're not good at it, I tend to think that leaning very far into the fantasy element works better. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you are good at it, all power to you. Yeah, I think. I mean, yeah. I think it's a difficult thing to pull off properly because you've you've got to do it with a little bit of subtlety, and you've got to have like a you've got to have a light touch when you're doing it. Otherwise, it just comes off as very clumsy, and sort of like it. It, it almost feels like as the audience, you're sort of being talked down to, like, oh, you know, you're not intelligent enough to understand this, so we've had to make it really obvious and like put it up in your face, which was part of my issue with the film. Bright upon the fact the script was terrible. So. Bearing all, all that in mind, and the fact that people are more aware of it nowadays, so it is always going to affect your game to some degree. Yeah. You've got to consider quite a bit when you're doing your world building mm. at the early stages of whether you want these low-level intelligent creatures in your world, and if you do, where do they come from, what do they eat, and what do they enjoy doing? Yeah, because if you can cover those three things, you can cover a lot about a society, and therefore you know where you're going to like place the goblins in yeah. relation to the humans on the morality scale. Yeah, and I mean th- those things you've just described—they're some of like the sort of foundational, sort of basic motivations for any like group or society. So if you can sort of get a lockdown on them, you can then easily expand to cover more complex things but like you say if you start off with the the sort of basics like what do we eat where do we get our food from stuff like that then you've got a good sort of bedrock to like build the rest of your ideas on so your talking goblins as we were discussing come from evil magic effectively yeah, pretty much sort of or rather from your description it seemed that the orcs came from evil magic and the goblins came from orcs breeding well, no, not really. Gob- goblins and orcs are the same thing. Goblin is just a word for the orcs when they're, they've not got like mighty empires later on when they're just like scavengers. But I, I do think yeah. it's one of the things that's worth mentioning while we're talking about Tolkien is obviously Tolkien's sort of work is seen as one of the sort of stereotypical, you know, like all orcs are evil sort of thing. But there's a there's a passage, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's either in the Silmarillion or it's in one of his letters where he describes like these huge armies massing to fight for the fate of Middle Earth. And he said, there's one, just a tiny little passage where he says, basically, both armies, the armies of good, the armies of evil, had members of every race in them, except for the elves, who were all on the side of good. So the fact that he said that means there must have been orcs who were also on the side of good because they're a race. Now, obviously, it's not really covered anywhere else, and we don't know whether he was going to build on it later, but I think it's interesting to keep that in mind because often Tolkien orcs are seen as like, oh, they're just evil. Goblins and orcs, they're evil, that's it. Well, also, the uh, song that you referenced earlier, first line of that, we don't want to go to war today, but the Lord of the Lash says, no, no, no. 
Yeah, and I, I don't even I don't know if that's in the books. To be honest, I just can't remember. It very much covers this idea that is sort of in there, though, that the goblins don't necessarily want to be fighting in Sauron's army, but they have to because otherwise they're going to get beaten up and murdered by bigger goblins. Yeah, and whilst I don't know about that song from the um, the animated version, there's definitely a bit in Lord of the Rings, I forget the names of the characters, but it's when there's the two orcs who've like they've captured Frodo and they're sort of fighting over what should be done when they end up having a big scrap. There's... Um, those two characters there's a bit where they're sort of talking either then or earlier on when one of them suggesting to the other oh wouldn't it be great if we could just like get some boys like get out of here and do our own thing and not have like the dark lord over us so i'm not saying they would have gone and instantly become charitable paragons of virtue <laughs> but the fact the fact is that they're sort of saying like you know we'd like to get out from under this because like, all these wars and everything we're fighting are because like the dark lord's like compelling us to do it suggests that without that influence maybe they wouldn't have been sort of like 100% evil who knows so a few more questions for okay. goblin world building and obviously these would apply to any other race that you wanted to feature as being potentially there for the heroes to splat yeah um however you wanted to arrange your game world interesting questions to ask for world building so but specifically looking at goblins and what stereotypes you'd expect to begin with if a goblin wanted to could they be gainfully employed in like human society yeah get yourself down to Gringotts that'd be alright <laughs> sorry I was just blowing your mind with that Harry Potter reference <laughs> so yeah that's another way that they've been used to cover a group that many people don't like in this case, bankers. Yeah. So, what sort of places would hire you goblins? So, you've just mentioned one. Well, I think it depends on what sort of characteristics your um, your goblins have. So, let's say we let's say we were looking at the traditional D and D goblins, mm-hmm. and you were building them into a sort of fantasy world. We know from the various monster manuals we've looked at earlier in the episode that they've got a facility for mining. Mm-hmm. So. If their sort of like if their mischievous sort of leanings could be brought under control, they breed a lot. Let's we've got to assume they pick up these mining talents fairly quickly. Let, so, so let's assume just for the sake of argument that like it's some sort of inbuilt thing. They don't really have to learn it. They're born with a talent for it. If you're someone who wants to like dig out a big mine and you can get like a workforce of goblins and you can give them like some outlets so they're not like causing mischief all the time, you've effectively got this endlessly self-breeding and fertile force of like miners and you're just like oh yeah i'll, I'll feed you well i'll give you some like fun and games or whatever and in return just dig out this rock for me okay so one of the thoughts that i had was um goblins who enjoy eating meat like being nasty and malicious possibly hired by an abattoir or a butcher Oh, for, to like dispose of the waste and stuff like that. They can eat as many chicken heads as they want. The city goes through a few hundred chickens every day. Mm-hmm. Probably a few thousand chickens every day. Who's going to kill all those chickens and not feel bad about it when they get home? I mean, I, I could see if you wanted to... Uh, I don't know if that's a good idea, but I could see if you wanted to... You could, And I'm sort of like leaning more towards a slightly sort of Victoriana sort of vibe here. Um, I could see goblins, which are very much described sort of in D&D terms... 
they're sort of like an underclass of creature. Mm-hmm. So whether it's like other goblinoids or whatever, they're sort of the bottom rung of the ladder, basically. That's why they've had to become crafty and cunning, because there's far stronger creatures that can just brute force it all over them if they want to. I could see if you were like looking at some sort of urban fantasy, like Victorian-inspired setting or whatever, that the goblins could almost become like an analogy for the sort of the poor sort of like working classes of that mm-hmm. scene you might have like your goblins like being street sweeps or maybe they're the people who like pick through the mud on the Thames like looking for bits of tat they can sell to people what was it called Carnival Row yes yeah yeah so if you're hiring goblins what yeah. sorts of people are going to be patrons of your business are there going to be people who are going to be unhappy about the goblin mining are there going to be human miners and dwarf miners that are angry because they've been put out of business they're being put out of business well I think if there's one thing that's sort of held true in most fantasy worlds as it is unfortunately in the mortal world it's like inevitably when you get a a group of people who are bought into an established area to do a job there's a certain level of like fear because like oh who are these people I mean even in the real world like who are these people with their weird customs and whatever coming in if you if it's an entirely different species I think that's going to be amplified you then tend to get the sort of bitterness and anger in it you know oh all these goblin miners have been bought in all of us dwarves are out of jobs so what are we going to do and that in- inevitably tends to lead to like acts of violence against the new group being bought in so maybe you get like sabotage on like some of the mines because like or like the the dwarven miners guild are like picketing them because they're like oh you can't trust these goblins eat their own babies everyone knows about that <laughs> that that sort of stuff and again that's where you get these groups will try and like weaponize the the, the stereotyped characteristics of uh, their enemy group so that they can portray them as sort of mm-hmm. monstrous and justify their actions and i think that's where you can have quite a lot of fun with that in a game because perhaps goblins don't eat their own babies. <laughs> but like everyone... You know, how you, oh, everyone knows that. Maybe yeah. the only reason everyone knows it is because everyone's been telling the story for <laughs> so long that everyone just assumes it's true. Perhaps the goblins are, like, horrified by this idea they eat their own babies. I mean, after all, if they're eating them all, how are there so many goblins about? <laughs> but maybe for them it's just not worth trying to, like, educate people or trying to protest it because they're like, well, they're not going to believe us anyway. So maybe they just get on with doing what they do. So... What about the law? Would the law treat the goblins the same as humans? I think there's a couple of different ways you could go with that. I mean, you could have it, if you want to go for the standard sort of like generico fantasy sort of grab bag of different races, let's call it the fifth edition of fantasy, then, um, yeah, you can just go, well, whatever civilised humanoids, they've got the same rights, everyone can play whatever. You want to play like a half dogman unicorn, that's fine, you go for it. You're absolutely grand. Now, that's the rules. I'm asking about the law. Well, that's what I'm leading into, because I think if you want to have that sort of game where the players have to have, like, a vast choice of races, you inevitably have to make some sort of concession to that in the background. Because if the laws... Let's say the law in your world is at, like, humans only. It's then more difficult to have people playing elves, dwarves, genocide, tieflings whatever else there is on the role of like races because every time and i'm not saying it's impossible but every time you rock up to like a village if like everyone in the village is like oh my lord it's a dwarf double spawn and so like getting the priest that's going to get old very quickly like if it happens every time you go to a village 
So I think you inevitably, if you want to have more player available races, you have to make some concessions within the background of the game to basically say like, oh, these races are all right, according to like the law. These monstrous, less playable races aren't. And we've got we've got a classic example of that that we've seen in D&D, which is the Harfall. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember when they when they were sort of like first around in like first edition, second edition AD&D, they were supposed to be like looked on very suspiciously. You know, that if you if you rocked into a, a town or a village with a half orcs member of your party until they'd sort of proven they could be trusted, people would be like, Oh, you know, them orcs are like our oh, first sign first sign of anything, like he's gonna like, get violent, he's gonna start flipping the tables and like burning it down and coming for our women and stuff like that, you know, you can't trust them. Whereas as the game went on and more and more people wanted to play half orcs, they eventually got sort of like folded into the game. Whereas now, although they maybe get the odd sly look, it's not as sort of pronounced as it was in earlier editions. And I think we're—I think you have to do the same with these other races if you want them to be mainstay player races. So if you just want to say like, oh, goblins aren't like a really a mainstay player race, but we're going to have one just this once. Fine, you could have like goblins are discriminated against. Maybe they're outlawed, and it could be quite fun to like sort of like role play that and how your character tries to overcome that. But I think if you wanted to make it a regular player race that anyone could just pick up and play, that sort of stuff's going to get old very quickly. What if it was the race of all of the player characters? It depends. I mean, if you want to run a game that's very focused on that that sort of vibe, then yeah, I could see that working. But you're probably not going to want to do that for every campaign. It'll probably be for a specific campaign. See, another idea that had occurred to me with the goblins was the idea of Robin Hood and his merry man, and them being the sort of trickster characters hiding out in the woods, ambushing people, robbing people. Yeah, I, I could see, I could see, again, I could see that working, but again, it's going to give you a very specific flavour of campaign. Oh, yeah. And like a lot of these ideas, you've got to be interested in that specific mm-hmm. idea of campaign. Now... If you if you said, oh yeah, we're going to start a campaign, you're going to be playing goblins, goblins are like outlawed because they're believed to be like these demonic creatures who eat their own babies and whatever, but you're going to be trying to like fight against that in a Robin Hood and the Merry Men style. If all your players are up for that, that could be great. It could be very interesting mm-hmm. for that one campaign. But chances are, if you then finish that campaign and you go on to the next campaign and you're like, right, you're all playing goblins, goblins are outlawed, <laughs> the players aren't going to be quite yeah. as enthused about it. Whereas I think, Indeed. I think if you're going to sort of run something for like a regular campaign, and you want it to be like ongoing or like a regular campaign, would you want to use for multiple games? You have to have a certain sort of baseline level, rather than. Whereas if you're just running it for a one shot or a one off campaign, you can obviously like skew those quite wildly based towards whatever the the principle of that campaign is. Okay, so different sort of ways that you could have arrangement of goblin society goblin communities okay and obviously to some degree this is going to depend on how integrated they are into the rest of the world yeah and obviously to anyone who's listening to this obviously we're just throwing ideas out there if you're going to use this in your games you'll have to tweak it to fit your specific game absolutely we're just trying to talk generally and sort of bounce a few ideas off each other I'm asking questions. I'm hoping they help people flesh out their campaign. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the point of this series, um, to try and give you a bit of inspiration. We're coming up with a few ideas off the cuff as we go along. That's right. So, goblin communities. Yeah. First up, is there such a thing as a goblin community? Was there ever? Are goblins just creatures that turn up now and then around human habitation? 
perhaps as a result of evil magic or something horrible growing somewhere or fungal spores, eggs being dropped. Well, I mean, I, I think an, an idea that I'd certainly be interested in is in a lot of the early monster manuals, it describes that goblins have a tribal society mm -hmm. and then it goes on to say oh and this tribal society is there's a big boss at the top some little bosses underneath him and then there's all the goblins mm -hmm. now we know that like in reality that's not how tribes of people were like really organized so but but obviously it, it's a stereotype and an artifice that works within the game to keep it simple mm -hmm. so you can go yeah we've got in the tribe we've got 20 like sub bosses then we've got 40 wolf riders and we've got whatever but i think if you wanted to make a bit more of them and again this depends on how much you're going to use them in your game because if you're only going to use goblins as like oh that they're, they're a bit of an enemy in a level dungeon that you splatter there's probably not a lot of point in putting all of this effort in but if they're going to be a more sort of prevalent mm -hmm. um, part of your campaign world i think it could be quite interesting to to lean more into the idea of like a tribal site and actually look I mean, and I'm no expert, but it'd be interesting to look at some of like the real world, like tribal societies, mm -hmm. and see how they worked, and then maybe sort of map not exactly, but take inspiration from that for how the goblins behave. And we we, we start to see a little bit of this in D and D, where we start to get the the mention of their god, and that they've got shaman. So you start seeing a bit of like the religious stuff coming in, whereas early on it's just like bosses, sub bosses, goblins, wolf riders. So. I think it could be interesting to sort of try and elaborate on that a bit more. But again, it depends on how much visibility your players are going to have that. So if you come up with all that wonderful background, this goes for any background, and the players don't see any of it, you may as well not have done that work. Unless you enjoy Absolutely. just doing it in your spare time, obviously. So another idea that I had for a type of goblin community okay. could be effectively a group of people living in an abandoned building or on a trash heap. Mm -hmm. um, they don't necessarily all have to be actual goblin goblins. Some of them. Oh, it's not goblin section. <laughs> Bong. Some, some of them could be other people who've been pushed to the margins for whatever reason. But effectively, a group that's living on the edge of the city, and maybe this was once like their ancestral lands, or maybe they happen to like grow up from certain types of mould. Yeah. There's so many different ways that you could have goblins appear. That's why where do little goblins come from is such an important question to your campaign world and to how to sort of go on with this sort of yeah. idea once you've got hold of one. Tell you what I quite like as well. Um, and again, this is probably coming from like the labyrinth. Uh, you know, there's the bit in it where they have like the big like metal golem thing comes out the gate and it turns out it's like a load of goblins like piloting it. Mm-hmm. I, I like that idea of, of, as goblins as sort of like tinkerers and sort of like mechanics. And if you look in Tolkien, although orcs and goblins are portrayed as being like quite primitive, when you actually look at like the technology they have in terms of like real oh, yeah, world technology, got the Fire Nation stuff. Yeah, they're, they're, they've got like the battering rams and the siege weapons and stuff like that. And although it all looks grimy and it all looks brutal and orcish and whatever, the actual technology level is like quite a bit higher. And I also like, although it's a more whimsical version in Labyrinth, you see like they've got like they're, they're like little rocket launchers, little spiky balls, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And um, this is something when I when I wrote one of the small adventures in Adventures in Great London, 
for um, the Middlelands. I basically had like a um, there's a creature called a sewer gripe, which is like this uh, big slimy like tentacle thing that lives in sewers. And I basically had a uh, like a ghost, one of those haunting the sewers. And when the players actually like investigated it, they found out that it was like um, it was like a contraption, like a big puppet made by goblin like, alchemists who were like trying to get some chemicals out the sewers. And they were like, "Oh, we're scaring everyone away with a ghostly gripe." And uh, that sort of came from that. And I know that Glenn, when he was creating the Midlands, he very much portrayed lots of different races of goblins. But a lot of them had this sort of slightly trickstery, but sort of like mechanical, sort of like tinkery nature to them. And there's like a, there's like a, I think there's like a, there's a, a forge in Great London, which is a, a, a goblin-led forge. And the the human forge is like the main sort of blacksmiths guild is having like a problem with them because they're like, oh, we follow strict safety rules and we do all of this. Whereas the goblins are like safety rules we just do what we want and what we think is interesting and half the time that means they'll like blow themselves up but occasionally they make these like amazing discoveries that like the normal blacksmiths don't make because they're they're just willing to flout the safety rules so there's almost like a sort of trade conflict sort of built into the setting which i quite like and i think ties back to your whole thing you were saying earlier like how would people react if like their jobs were threatened and their livelihoods were threatened so there's one other crazy idea that I had for goblins. All right, okay. That is a bit weird and a bit silly, but I thought it could make for quite a fun adventure. And anyone so that I, wants to take I, it, I've, I've got it. a silly idea after this. I won't <laughs> worry about how silly yours sounds. So, where do little goblins come from? Well, you see, when when two big goblins love each other very much. Well, in this case, it only requires one big goblin, Oof. and they're sort of amphibious. They oh, leave. So- of like frog spawn goblin spawn so one morning the heroes go to their village go to the pub wake up and every pond every bucket every well everywhere the water might be is full of goblin frog spawn goblin goo and they know that they've only got so much time before it hatches out and that for the first say six months of their life Goblins are horrible, ravenous monsters. Maybe not even months. It could be just like a couple of days or a couple of hours. But that there's this growing period from spawn to goblin. Okay. Where it's a ravenous monster. It's just going to eat everything in sight. It's got no concept of right, wrong, good, bad. What's going to get it hurt? What's not going to get it hurt? It just wants to eat and run and chase things that's pretty cool because toddlers are scary <laughs> I, I tell you what might be an interesting depending on how closely you wanted to link the goblins and the other goblinoids what if like when they hatch out from the tadpoles like the goblin is like the tadpole form and then like if they're left mm-hmm. too long they become hot goblins orcs whatever you want and then maybe if they're left really long they become ogres or whatever well this was what I was thinking see that could make a really good interesting first session where you see this problem as it plays out and your characters try to deal with it yeah like in the story arc that i'd be thinking of but then later on you've got maybe a couple of these creatures that have survived that have effectively started to gain sentience started to learn the local language they've got no parents to learn from 
but maybe they've started to make themselves useful here and there on a farm or in a local shoe shop. And you're then left with this thing of your player characters know about these creatures and know like how horribly destructive they can be during this breeding cycle. Mm. But they also know that they can grow up into like adult, sentient, intelligent creatures. I think it'd be quite cool as well. I mean, depending on how subtly you wanted to sort of like make this background known, is it might be quite cool if, like, say, when they're uh, when they're fighting like a load of goblins like at the start, maybe they come across one with like a, a distinctive physical characteristic. Like, maybe he's like, I don't know, maybe he's missing an arm or something, or he's got like a distinctive marking on his face, and then like a few years down the line they come across like an orc or an ogre that has exactly the same physical characteristics and most players might just be like oh that's a bit weird and they carry on to like splat the ogre but you know if they're interested you could potentially then lead into like oh this is actually the same creature so I thought that could be quite interesting yeah yep. quite like that uh, my silly idea was going to be you're talking about um, goblins being organised and one of the things that struck me is certainly later on when they're talking about the smaller groups of goblins is they're very they could be very much like a like a gang of some sort and you were talking about attack the block which sort of got me thinking about mm-hmm. that and I was thinking what about the um, the old uh, West Side Story <laughs> Yeah, Romeo yeah. and Juliet with goblins. Exactly, yeah. So that could work. So in that you've got you've got um a single species, obviously humans in the original one, but it could be goblins in this. And we see sort of like hints at this where it talks about the different colorations of goblins in the monster manuals, and it says that all of a single tribe tend to share the same coloration for obvious reasons. So what if with these smaller gangs, instead of like having like the gang colours or whatever, maybe it's like a physical characteristic and you could portray them as they're not having a go at each other because one's goblins and one human or whatever it's two groups of goblins who are maybe competing for a resource maybe they've got some like ancient beef between their chiefs that they're trying to sort out and you could actually have the players and again this is a bit like our sort of bugbears bugbears bullywogs episode where you could have the players stumble into what at first they think is like, oh, it's just a lot of goblins like being goblins. And then gradually they get to know, actually, there's two groups of goblins here, or maybe even more, and they're both sort of competing over something, and they're fighting each other as much as they're fighting us. Or maybe they weren't actually bothered with the village they've been messing with, but the village is just getting caught in the crossfire. So, And I think the reason that's interesting is because that prevents, sorry, presents a whole different slew of ways of potentially dealing with it because obviously yeah you could just romp in and kill all the goblins problem solved but you could also go like well what what's the what are they is the problem what are they competing over what what's driving a wedge between them maybe we could sort that out and if you do that and it stops the conflict with the goblins do, are they then peaceful with the village do they then cause even more problems with the village because they're united and it just makes it a bit more complex and gives it a bit more depth and you can potentially get a more interesting story from it. That's Goblins from Red Dice Diaries. Indeed. So it's about time for us to turn into unconvincing CGI owls, fly out of the window and into the distance with the strains of 80s music playing. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, tell us how you've used Goblins in your game or give us feedback on anything else we broadcast on the show, you can do so by either sending us an email to rdd rpg podcast at gmail.com 
or you can leave us a voicemail message using SpeakPipe. There'll be a link in the description below. Until we see you next time, take care, stay safe, and keep gaming. Bye. Bye. Bye.